And so what brings me today to Psalm 3? We've been going through the, for the first couple of Psalms, and we're going to try to get through most of the first book of Psalm. Um, and Psalm 3, as I, as I read this Psalm, it just it brings to mind the experiences we have. I guess what I would say is, to get your mind in the right gear, how long has it been since you had like a really, a week that was just too heavy? Hard to think back that far, or is it pretty easy to get? Pretty easy, right? That week was too heavy. Maybe you're like, my whole year has been too heavy. Yeah, I gotcha. I understand it. And so sometimes when, when life feels so weighty and so crushingly heavy, it can make you feel like just throwing up the white flag and saying, I give up. I can't do it. You know, they, they, sometimes you know that they're coming. You think that they're coming. Sometimes they just come out of nowhere and you don't know how you got here, how it got to be so twisted and, and wrong and dark and bad. But you just can't, whether you think you know what's coming or you don't know what's coming, have you figured out yet that you can't actually be prepared for that? Some of you think that if you, you have like all this worry about what's coming and you can figure out, you can sort through all the possibilities of they might say this and they might do that. And this might happen. And what about this? And I figure it all out that you'll be prepared. I don't even know what that means, right? When bad things happen in life, it stinks, you're not like, well, this is fine because I was prepared, right? So we waste all this time you're trying to get ready, but we're not ready because it just, it shows up in your life and you really don't want it. So you react to it like all of us do. Sometimes there are, you know, different personalities. Sometimes you, you bump into somebody and their reaction to hard times is to spill it out on everybody who comes across their path. You know, how are you doing? Oh, let me tell you. You got an hour, sit down. Let me get you some coffee because it's going to be a while, you know. Other times, and, and you know, that, there's something healthy about sharing your, your struggles with one another in, in a family context and all that. But then there's, there's another reaction that is just to isolate, to pull back, to withdraw. A lot of times if you have a personality, uh, like an introverted type of personality, you feel that people in general are heavy. And so when life becomes heavy, you don't want to add anything to it, but it pulls you away from some of the relief that God has, even though it doesn't feel like it would be relief. Sometimes it pulls you away, and so you isolate, and you wall off, and you get into some really dark places. You know, other people live in denial. How are you? I'm fine. Everything's good. Everything's great. You know, uh, I, I had an interaction with somebody I don't know this week, but I, bu- I bumped into him for, some, uh, for a, some kind of reason, and I was... They asked me uh, some kind of question about life, and I had mentioned that we had just found out uh, some things about Dana's dad having cancer and whatever, and he said, oh, I I don't even recognize that. I'm not going to speak that into existence. I'm like, it already exists, man. I I, I don't know what world you live in, but, you know, this is what it is. uh, I mean, I didn't have a big argument with him, but in my head, I was like, I don't know what you think you're doing here. Do you ever wonder what a really healthy responses for a child of God. Because you don't get to opt out of the hard times of life. You, the storms come, the, the trials, the struggles, they, they show up. What is a healthy response from someone who is Jesus's follower, from someone who is born again, a child of God? And so Psalm 3 is a model for us. Much of the, this book of Psalms, the, this book one of Psalms, is a collection of prayers of what we call prayers of lament. Lament, it, more contemporary word, complaint. And what these prayers are, are crying out to God for help. 
If you read uh, in your Bible, when you read these Psalms, at the beginning of some of the Psalms, there are little headings. Those are actually part of the, the Bible. Even though they're not listed as a verse, they are included. As fact, in, in the Hebrew Bible, generally speaking, they are verse 1. And then verse what we have is verse 1 is verse 2 and, and so on. So in this Psalm, we have a little heading and it tells us that this is a Psalm written by David. And then it tells us a little bit more. It tells us when this was written by David, and it says, when he fled from his son Absalom. Now, if you don't know that story, um, Absalom, David's son, displaced David as king for a little bit, chased him out of Jerusalem, and David went into hiding, and it was all fallout from some of the choices David made in, in his relationship with Bathsheba and, and, and her husband Uriah. And so this was some of what fell out from the hand of God on David's life, that he is now running from his son who is really trying to put him to death. And so he cries out to God. And I think that as we look at this, it, it puts us in maybe a little bit different mindset than a lot of times when we talk about trouble in life. Because sometimes the trouble in our life is of our own making. Right? And when the trouble is of your own making, you sometimes feel less eligible to cry to God for help. And yet we find David, who, by the way, lists at the top of the psalm why he's crying to God for help. So there's definitely a deliberate message in this. I blew it. I'm in trouble. Now, what, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to cry out and ask God for help. So I got news for you. If you feel like you've made a mess, this psalm teaches us that we can cry out to God even when it's our fault. Oftentimes, the, the desire and the willingness to cry out to God when it's our fault is the repentance and the turn to faith that we really need for hope to be restored and revived in our lives. Because we let go, we finally get hopeless about fixing it or doing it or making it how we want ourselves. So we give up on that. And instead we turn to God and say, God, I can't do it. You've got to fix it. I've made a mess. And there's repentance to that. It's the way that you got into the mess in the first place. Now, that doesn't mean if it's not your fault that this doesn't teach us something. Because other times... Storms show up in our life and they're not our fault. They just come. And so when we're attacked by people or when we enter into trials when we, because we live in a world that is full of sin, this psalm says, here is how we as the people of God can respond to that. Because none of us escape trials. There is no deal with God no matter what you think in your head that if you live really well, if you make good choices, if you serve God with your life, that God agrees to smooth it all out. There's no deal with God like that. Do you think Jesus did everything the Father wanted him to do? Think he obeyed the Father perfectly and accomplished everything the Father asked? Did God smooth out Jesus' experience? So why would I think God would make that deal with me? There are preachers out there nowadays that try to take the word of God and make it say that if you do what God wants you to do, if you give to the church, uh, that you know God will give you back more money. It's a, it's a way to get rich. Well, you'll get rich, but not here. And if you get rich here, it's not for here. If God has given you money, it's not so you can enjoy this life and just spend your money on yourself and learn to be selfish. If God has given you money, he's entrusted it to you to use for eternal purposes, to live by faith like this is not what matters. 
So when you're in trial and when you're in trouble, I'm supposed to live like this is not what matters. Like this is just the here and now. This is temporary. I have faith in the redemptive hand of God. I'm supposed to live like that. But when I have an abundance, I'm also supposed to live like the here and now is not where it's at. We're all called to live the same way, by faith. Too often, when I have abundance, I use it as an excuse to serve my own selfish desires. So how do we react when life turns dark on us? Let's follow David's journey, and he kind of shares with us this journey of his soul, and, and see if we can learn from it, how we can follow the path, the, the lead that he gives us when we face attacks and trials. Verses 1 and 2, he starts to set up the scene. He says this, Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. What I first notice about this psalm as we dive into it is that David feels like he's in danger. He feels like there is threat against his well-being, against his life. And you can kind of slap any label you want on danger. You know in your life what feels dangerous to you, what, what fills your heart with dread and fear. Sometimes the danger is very real. Sometimes the danger is imagined. We, we create scenarios that feel in danger even though we actually aren't. Sometimes the danger is exaggerated. Uh, what, what is going to come is not as big as we make it or, or because we're emotional people and because fear takes a hold of us and because the enemy loves to attack us with that. He, he takes legitimate fear and he expands it. So whether it's something physical, you know, my, my health or my well-being or, or, or a physical threat of, of violence or danger, whether it's emotional danger and, and I, I feel like I've been traumatized emotionally and people say things that really hurt me, and, and not because I'm super sensitive, but because they say nasty, hurtful things to me, or whether it's relational and, and I'm worried about some relationship breaking or, or losing uh, touch with somebody that I really care about, or it's a career danger. You know, I have a track for my, my job and my, my life and my provision for my family, and, and it might be all falling apart. Even spiritual danger, that I feel like, you know, there is discouragement and attack and, and even a pull towards things that I shouldn't be engaged and involved in. No matter what the attack is that you face in your life, this is David's model for us about how to respond to that. And, and when we get into feelings of danger, part of the problem as a human being is I don't think super clear when I'm in panic. Have you noticed that? I know the, like in the, in the stories, in the movies, the heroes, when danger shows up, they just crystallize all their thoughts. I don't know anybody like that. As soon as danger shows up in your life, your mind is spinning all kinds of different ways. Sometimes it's the best thing if you, if you have the opportunity just to take a breath and take a moment and kind of let it, let it settle for a second so you can sift through, yeah, that, that's bad and that's awful. I got to put that over here for a second. Now, what do I got to do in this moment of panic? And so being thoughtful and kind of understanding what we have as believers is, is a really good opportunity for us. And so David, here in this moment of danger, begins by assessing the danger. David, he shares what he's thinking and feeling, and he begins by addressing the Lord. The first word, Lord, right? Who's he talking to? He's talking to his heavenly father. He's talking to the, the God that he worships. And what he does is he pours out his complaint before God. So first thing I want you to know is this. God can handle real life. You do not have to edit yourself with God. You can go before God and you can share with Him what it feels like when you are scared, when you are upset, 
when it hurts, when, when you're disappointed, when you have questions, God can handle real life from you. And so if you've been holding back from God, don't worry. You are not actually hiding it from God. He already knows what you think. He already knows what you feel. And he is ready for you to come to him with real life. God is big enough and strong enough. And as your heavenly father is faithful enough to stand with you, even when you've got those kind of things to pour out to God. Now, I say that, but I'm not trying to suggest that it's a healthy thing to just always complain to God. You know, there is choice we make about whether or not we will live constantly noting and constantly have my radar on, on high alert for anything that I don't like. If you go through life always looking for what you don't like, you will find a, an absolute plethora of things, you know, wide variety all over the place of things you don't like. Right? I, if I sat here and thought about it right now, I could come up with 10 things real quick that I don't like in life. And then when I got done that, it would be probably hard for me to stop at 10. I could probably keep going, right? So uh, God can handle your complaint. God can handle the cry of your heart. But that doesn't mean that my prayer life should be just completely dominated by God, why is this and why is that? I don't have to be scared of pouring out to God, but I do have to be mindful to be healthy of what I set my mind on and where I give, what I give my attention to. So I don't need to hold back from my father. He can take it. Hebrews makes a point of noting that Jesus lived a life just like we live, with all the normal pains and trials and, and the cross on top of that. And so Hebrews says, you don't serve someone, you don't worship someone who doesn't get it. You serve someone who understands what life is like. So when you say, through the name of Jesus, this and that, and, and how hard it is and how heavy it is or whatever, he goes, yeah, I know. Now what are we going to do about that? Now, the, so it just starts with the word Lord to address this to God, Heavenly Father, uh, self-existent one. And then he does three phrases where he uses the word many. See that? He says, many are my foes, how many rise up against me, many are saying of me. So you have this sense of crowds upon crowds just gathering and growing against David. What David feels like is that there is this large and growing group of people who are against him, who are trying to harm him, and he feels overwhelmed. He feels outnumbered. He feels like there's nowhere to turn. My foes are against me. The word foe actually is the word for oppressor, and it has the idea of of twisting in, narrowing, and and strangling the life out of you, tighter and tighter, kind of like a snake that, that is a constrictor snake. It just keeps wrapping around and wrapping around until it squeezes the life out of you. There are times in life where life feels like it's squeezing the life out of you. My foes. Those who would continue to put pressure on me and and make it feel heavier and tighter and less and less options, nothing I can do. So there are many. It's this multitude. And what are the many doing? David says, they rise up against me. In other words, this, this group of people, they all have set their mind on hurting me. They rise up against me. They're not just like, I don't like you. They're going to hurt me. They're going to destroy me. And so what David is looking at in this situation is he's looking at the armies that are now under the control of his son. Armies who used to be under his control are now under the control of his son and they're coming after him. And it just seems like there's no hope. There's no way out of this. This is going to be dark. This is going to be bad. There's nothing I can do about it. 
they rise up against me. And David is experiencing what we know what it feels like, people trying to hurt us. In a bigger way, this feeling of danger can apply to any situation where you feel overwhelmed or threatened. And I think specifically when it feels like it's a flood too big to handle. When it's not like, well, I could do this or I could do this. It's like, I don't even know what to do. That's the emotion, that's the feeling that David is describing here. And these many who are against him, these many who are his foes, they have something to say. And I want you to know, trials and trouble always try to say this to us. They they always try to say the same thing. What did they try to say to David? God will not deliver him. Your trials, your hardships will always try to say this to you that God won't see you through, that God has forgotten you, that God has abandoned you, that God doesn't care about you. Always the same message. Always a lie, but always the same message. When life gets hard, that's what we hear. And the voice that they have against David is meant to, to cause him to just give up, to discourage him, to deflate his hope. They tell me and they tell others around me, God will not help me. God will not come through for me. I am alone in my danger. The most vicious part of this attack is that it pulls our confidence from the only one we legitimately have confidence in. The only hope that I have, this attack tries to pull me from that hope and from that faith. So when that happens to you, if you ever find yourself under attack like this, where many are your foes and many rise up against me and many are saying to you, God will not deliver you, what do you do? What's the response of a believer? Well, let's keep going. Verses 3 down to verse 6, it says this. But you, Lord, are a shield around me, my glory, the one who lifts my head high. I call out to the Lord, and he answers me from his holy mountain. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear, though tens of thousands assail me on every side. So we have... Many are against me. And what does David do? There's nowhere to turn. There's nowhere to turn. But then he turns here, but you. He turns his attention from all of his enemies to God himself. Believers, you are invited in those moments of darkness to live like God is listening. Like God is present. And you are invited to turn your focus from all of the problems in your life to the answer for all of the problems in your life. You are invited to turn your attention from all of the struggles to the strength that God fills you with. From the pain that you feel to the one who is your healer. You are invited to give yourself to God. And while your foes may be many, our hope is only one. This pivot, this turn is the act of faith that brings hope and peace to our souls. Too often, the trials tries to swallow us up and we forget that the hardship is not the whole picture. Don't we? It feels like this is the big deal. This is it. This is the big thing that matters. But it's only a small part of the picture. And so when David feels like my enemies are closing in, they keep getting closer and closer and there's no way for me to escape, he says, but that's not the whole picture. He sees more. You, Lord, are a shield around me. 
We know that David was a great warrior, that he fought many battles. You know, we, we read about him fighting Goliath in the first battle that we read about. But before that, he's fighting a bear and he's fighting a lion. Certainly a man of courage and a man who understands what it takes to go out into a battlefield with a sword in your hand and try to stay alive and defeat the enemy. And so as a warrior, David uses this picture from war. You are a shield. A shield is when you are under attack, if someone is trying to bring a blow down on you, the shield is your way to deflect that blow, to protect yourself from that blow so it doesn't cause mortal damage to you, right? A shield. Now, what David says is this is not a normal shield because a normal shield is just from wherever you have that shield. But he says, what about God? You are a shield all around me. David says, I'm getting attacked from every side. God, you are a shield all around me. You are watching over and protecting me completely from all angles because everywhere there is attack in your life, God is there. Everywhere there is trial in your life, God is there. Everywhere that you are in danger, God is there. So if you get God when you get struggles, are you thankful? Or are you complaining? Sometimes we just get so settled on what we want life to feel like, we miss out on the really big blessing that there is that God says, I will be there. Wherever the attack is, I'll be there. I'll be there with you. Is that a great enough blessing? Is that a big enough thing that I can give thanks for the trials? Because my Father is there with me. Attack from all sides. You are my shield all about me. You are my glory. That's kind of a weird word, my glory. What he's talking about is my name, my reputation. And what he's kind of saying is, I can't protect my own reputation. Obviously, he's disgraced as a king here. He says, God, my hope is in you. My glory is in you. In other words, you are the one that I'm trusting with, even my reputation and even my name. Some of the the pains and struggles we face right now is what people think of us. When people have an attack on what, who you are, what you've done that maybe you didn't do or, or what you're like or what your character is that maybe it isn't. Is your hope in God or is your hope setting everybody straight? You know, there's a passage in Nehemiah where they say, well, Nehemiah, if you don't do what we want, we're going to go say this and this about you. And Nehemiah says, do whatever you want. I got work to do. Believers, we need to be more like that. There's a group of people that Paul uh, brought into the family of God in, in, in the city of Corinth and the, the church of Uh, Corinth. And he says to them, I care very little if I'm judged by you. We need more of that in the church of God. Not because we are callous and, and disconnected, but because I can't manage what everybody thinks. That's on you. If you think something nasty about me and you haven't brought it to me and gotten it resolved, that's just the enemy at work and you're letting them have the play. So, so that's up to you. But I can't own all of that. God doesn't give me strength to own your choices. God gives me strength to own my choices, right? So David, when he talks about you are my glory, he says, listen, here's what makes me feel okay about myself. I'm yours. That's how I'll define myself. And anybody who wants to know me, anybody who knows me clearly or well enough will know that I belong to you. And so my reputation's in your hands. You lift my head high, he says. As the battle rages on, when I get weary, when I get stooped under the the, the heaviness of it all, I am worn out and I am vulnerable. What does God do? He gives me strength. He restores me. He sustains me and holds my head up. 
There is this hope and this confidence that we have, not because we feel strong, but because we know God is strong. Folks, it doesn't have to feel strong to be strong. When you feel weak, when you feel tired, when you feel overwhelmed, when you feel wrung out and worn out, God is still your strength. You may be more aware of it in that moment if you walk by faith, because when I feel strong, I... This is my strength. But you are not without strength when you are weak. You will have God Almighty ready to pour strength into you. But do we believe that? And so David says, while others will tell me God will not come to rescue you, I will call out to the Lord and he will answer me. Their voices say God won't help. My voice says, God, please help me. I choose to call out to God. In spite of how isolated I feel, in spite of how alone it seems, I know God won't forsake me. So then David says this, and this is kind of very practical, but a very cool way of saying it. I lie down and sleep. Now, when you're under attack, when you're in danger, if you're in the middle of a battlefield, probably lying down to sleep, not the greatest thing you can do. Not, people would say, well, that person is really, you know, loopy. They're going to go to sleep in the middle of a battle. What's wrong with them? But David says, I'm in the middle of a battle. I'm under attack. Everyone's closing in on me. So I'm going to take a nap. I'm going to lie down and sleep. What does that tell you about what David is saying there? He says, I am so confident that my soul is at rest because God is my shield and will answer me. I need rest. God doesn't. I need sleep. God never sleeps. And so I'm going to put my hope in Him and I'm going to be at rest. If we can get, when we pivot from our problems to the one who is our answer, that should get us to the place where we can say, now my soul is at rest. How do I know that I have taken my eyes off of the trial and put it onto my hope? How do I know? Because my soul becomes at rest. And I'm kind of like, you know what? I'm tired. I'm going to go to sleep. God's got it. Do you get there? Is that true? God has it? So the only difference is whether or not I embrace that or I don't, isn't it? So do we? You know, in the Old Testament, there was this this, this pattern that God had given them that every seventh day, they called it the Sabbath day, and the word Sabbath literally means rest. So every seventh day, they would stop from all the things that they had to do, and they would deliberately rest. Now, if you've ever heard of, lived with, been a, talked to a farmer, is there just like not enough work for seven days of the week? Like, oh man, I got it all done in six days. I guess I got to take a day of rest. No, there's always things to do, right? So the Sabbath in an agrarian society like that, where people are farming and raising cattle and crops and things like that, was this statement. It was a practiced way of saying, there's work to do, but I trust the Lord. And so I am not going to do the work today that I could do today, because ultimately it's not about what I do, it's about my Heavenly Father taking care of me. We need, I know we don't celebrate the Sabbath like we used to, but man, we don't rest at all. We are so unpracticed at resting that when God brings trial into our life and offers us rest, we go, don't know what that is. 
I wouldn't know how to rest if it was good, let alone if it's bad. God brings trials into our life to teach us again to rest. And we need to choose that. That was a deliberate choice for those farmers. It wasn't like, I don't have a to-do list in my head. It was, this is honoring and pointing to the fact that God is the one who works out my life, not me. It is a surrender of control. It is the, the giving up of the needing to do something. I'm not talking about being lazy, but I'm talking about deliberately setting aside work, activity, pressure, stress, deliberately setting it aside because God is my hope and God is my sustainer. He is the lifter of my head. He is the shield all around me. God is the one who is the hope for my life. And so I can do that physically. I can do that mentally. I can do that emotionally. I can choose just like they chose to not live completely wrapped up in all that could be done. There's more to do. They said, today we rest I think, believers, we live worn out, not because our faith is so great or because our God is so weak. We live worn out because we have confidence in our own ability to think something through, to see clearly enough what is or isn't happening, and to figure out how to work it out. We have so much confidence in that that we can't rest. And God invites us to rest. Lying down to sleep while you're in danger is a strong statement that God is the one I trust. And whatever his plans are, they are good. And then he says, I wake again. God gives me a new day. My enemies determined you know, to, to, to end my days. God gives me a new day. He is the one who holds my life. And so I will not fear, though tens of thousands assail me on every side. So you've got the many versus the one. And, and you know, who do you believe is stronger? Tens of thousands or one? I guess the way to ask this question is, how much trouble does it take for you to believe that you are outnumbered? You and God are outnumbered by how many people? And and when he says tens of thousands, I don't know if you've ever seen tens of thousands. Uh, A few years ago, I had the opportunity to get down on the the field in the Eagles Stadium and try to mess up a field goal in front of 75,000 people. Tens of thousands of people is an awful lot of people. When you're standing there looking up at all these people and they're yelling at you because you missed, you know, it's a lot of people. It's a, and if you can imagine, all of those people have your destruction in mind. It feels hopelessly overwhelming. Beyond hope. David says, even though tens of thousands come to attack me, I will not fear. Why? Because God has got me. Are you convinced that nothing can overwhelm you? That no attack is too great? That when God is your protector and God is your fortress, that you are safe no matter how it looks? Do we believe, even though everyone and everything is against us, that God has us? So David's response is just simply verses 7 and 8. Arise, Lord. Deliver me, my God. Strike all of my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. David says, so here's my response. I ask God to save me. It is that decision to fully trust God again. There was a time in your life where you trusted God all the way. David says, when you are in trouble, when you're under attack, it's an invitation to trust him afresh and anew, to give your life to him again. 
Arise, God, arise. Because when you get up, all else fails. When we walk by faith, this is where we wind up. I see all of that mess, but I set my eyes on the Lord. I have every reason to fear, but instead I am confident because God is the one who holds me. And so I give all my problems to him. He's the one who's going to fix them. He's the one who's going to solve them. What does that mean, I give my problems to him? It means I leave the sorting out of stuff to God. So you read these words and it kind of sounds really harsh. Strike them on the jaw and break their teeth. I've felt that way sometimes. How about you? What's David saying? I'm not going to do it. You do it. You do whatever the right thing is. And, and those pictures, they sound really harsh, but really they're a poetic way of saying, stop their mouths, strike their jaw, stop their mouths from talking. You be the one who silences them, not me. I'm not going to shout them down. I'm not going to argue them down. You be the one who shuts them up, not me. And break their teeth. To, it's like take out their fangs, take out their weapons, take out their way to hurt me their way to kill me, their way to do damage in my life. In several places in Old Testament poetry, the idea of breaking the teeth is is the picture of delivering a a prey from the mouth of the predator to break their teeth. It's as though the the, the, uh, animal is already caught in the, the mouth of the one who wants to eat it and breaking their teeth is delivering it even though it's hopeless, even though they're already caught. So David says, even when I'm already caught, I don't give up hope because you, God, can even break their teeth can stop them from hurting me. So what we learn here is that God can deal with the attack. We don't have to. If God wants to use me, fine. A lot of times God doesn't want to use you. You're like, God, I'll come to you when I've done everything I think I should do. You know, instead of God, it's yours. I give it to you. If you want me to do something, you show me. Otherwise, And we can also learn that a desperate situation is never too far gone for God's hand and God's power. If you have believed that your life is too far gone for God to save you, for God to put the pieces back together, for God to deliver you, it's never too late. Because God is big enough for no matter how far you've gone. And he will go to any length to rescue you, to save you. So David finishes by saying, here's why I turn my attention to God, because from the Lord comes deliverance. From the Lord comes deliverance. If you want peace in your soul, if you want to feel secure and safe, if you want to have the rest that God invites you to in the storm or out of the storm, you've got to get convinced that from the Lord comes deliverance. Now, If you've ever struggled to do what David does here, this process and and facing this storm in life, we have a great way to remember the foundation that we have for trusting the goodness of God. And we're going to do that right now. So I'm going to ask you wherever you are, if you would just leave your stuff where it is and form a circle around the room, we're going to celebrate communion together this morning. All right, so as you get into place, try to make sure we're only one deep. We can go across the front here if we need to um, so that we can serve everyone. Uh, what first thing we're going to do here is we're going to send these cups around. If today you would like to just observe instead of participating, as those cups come to you, just pass them by without taking one. And that is an easy way for you to just watch what's happening instead of needing to partake. I promise you it will be no pressure, no embarrassment. Nobody will look at you a wrong way. Um, just pass them by without taking one, and, and that will be a very clear signal that you are just going to observe today. So we talk about God's 
saving and protecting hand. How much does God have passion for saving you? How much is God devoted to meeting you in that moment of attack, in the middle of your trial? How much? Well, Paul says this about his own life in 1 Timothy. He says, this is a trustworthy, trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Paul says, I was in the worst danger that any person ever faces. I was in danger of standing before my creator, guilty and condemned, hopeless. And then he says, so I want you to know what God does when you're in danger. And I was in, I'm the worst of the people. If anybody uh, thinks they have, they have standing before God, they have to be scared about that. Nobody had to be more scared than me. That's what Paul says. I was the worst sinner. And what did God do? He stepped in and he sent his son to take my place. That's what we celebrate this day. That's the reason that I say to you, no matter what danger you face, God already showed you that he comes to our aid, that he comes to save us in the middle of the attack. He's already showed us that. And if you've forgotten that, if that feels far away, this is our reminder today. Because he takes bread and he breaks it and he says, this is my body broken for you. And as they come around to serve, you'll tear off a piece. And as you tear that piece off, this is his body broken for you. This is how far he goes. This is how faithful <coughs> God is. This is my blood poured out for you, spilled for you, because you were in danger. And I'm your savior. And I came to rescue you. Today, as we celebrate this, as we reflect on this, this is your invitation to draw near to God again. Come close to him. Put your trust in him again. If it's been shaken, let it be refreshed because of what God has shown you. This is a fabulous way he's given us to remember how good, faithful, and full of love he is for us. Let's do this in remembrance of him. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, took the cup, said, this is my body, this is my blood. Whenever you eat or drink, do it in remembrance of me, in remembrance of him. The precious symbol of a God who loves and saves, a God who meets us in our dark moments. Let's close our service in a word of prayer, and we'll be dismissed. Let's pray. Fathers, we reflect on what we have just done. Simple symbols, bread and juice, yet so powerfully deep with meaning. Remind us again that you sent your son to die in my place. That when danger was way too much for me, that my soul was hanging in the balance that you made a way, not because I deserved it, and not because I didn't make the mess, but because you love us, you love me. Fill us again with the preciousness of that truth and the relationship you invite us to that is rich and alive, that can ground us no matter what storm comes our way. Fill us this day with the truth of this message and let us live trusting you like David did and like you invite us to. So Father, we trust you this day. Walk with us as we go. We thank you.
in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thanks, everybody.